This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nally. Our guest this week is Shirley Bloomfield, CEO of NTCA, the Rural Broadband Association. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Bayer, helping meet the challenges of sustainability to help shape possibilities and our vision of health for all, hunger for none. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with NTCA Shirley Bloomfield next. As a leader in the industry, we at Bayer have the opportunity and responsibility to help address the challenges around sustainability and ensure that we can all thrive while using our planet's resources in a sustainable way. Sustainability is an integral part of our operations, and we believe that farmers and agriculture can be part of the solution to many of the planet's biggest challenges. Whether that's helping growers utilize new technologies to get more out of their land, or incentivizing carbon-smart practices such as strip or no-till and planting cover crops, we're committed to innovate, grow, and partner with farmers to help shape what's possible and further our vision of health for all, hunger for none. For more on Bayer's sustainability efforts, visit Bayer.com forward slash en forward slash sustainability. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Over 400 members of NTCA, the Rural Broadband Association, were on Capitol Hill last week meeting with legislators and working toward solutions for expanded broadband coverage for the nation. After a two-year hiatus due to the COVID pandemic, CEO Shirley Bloomfield says members had a lot to catch up on. The advantage that they had in doing this, the fly-in at this point in time, is that broadband is so top of mind for policymakers. There's so much activity that was done in Congress, the passage and the signing to law of the Infrastructure Act um, that really devotes a lot of resources towards broadband. So, So the nice thing was... People were really, my folks who are building broadband as quickly as they can and folks on Capitol Hill who want broadband built as quickly as it can be built had a great kind of meeting of the mind to talk about where are we, what is happening, what are we waiting for, what are the next steps, what are the challenges, um, you know, and, and what can folks expect to see. So that was, um, you know, so there was a lot on the table really focusing on, getting that deployment done, how to do it effectively, how to do it efficiently, and where are the holdups? So a lot of ground was covered, I think, over the course of the week. Well, how many different government agencies right now have a priority of rural broadband that have funds, and are they working together? That is the multi-million dollar question, isn't it? Um, so there's a couple of agencies that have historically been very, very engaged in the space. So you've always had the FCC, which is the Federal Communications Commission, who is really tasked with telecom policy, broadband policy. So they've always had a role in this space in terms of things like the Universal Service Program or the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund, initiatives that have been put in place to not only build but to sustain and make broadband affordable. So the FCC has long, long been in the game. More recently, the Department of Agriculture, USDA, has come into play because Congress has created, in addition to their traditional loan programs, a program called ReConnect, which is a program that has been specifically designed to put 
grant money and grant loan money into rural communities to build broadband. So they have amplified as a player in the space over the course of the last couple of years. And then you come to the president in November signing the Infrastructure Act into law, and that gave NTIA, the National Telecommunications Information Agency, which is in the Department of Commerce, $65 billion um, to be devoted towards broadband, most of that for capital investment, but also a good chunk for middle mile investment, for affordability, for digital inclusion. So now you've got, at a minimum, three players at the federal level, never mind that the NTIA money, the $42 billion just devoted to building broadband networks, will trickle down to the states through a process that we're going to find out more about in May, um, you've got a lot of coordinating that needs to be done because what we've got to do is we've got to make sure that when people talk about rural, they're defining rural the same way. When you talk about broadband, you've got to make sure you're defining broadband the same way. What is the speed that you're talking about? Currently, um, they're all very different. And then I would throw in a fourth player through the recovery of, you know, a lot of the American Recovery Act. We now have Treasury that had a $10 billion portfolio that they could allocate to the states for broadband use. So you've got a lot of programs um, that are in play. Some of them say that broadband is 25-3 as a speed. Some have acknowledged that symmetrical speeds are going to be very important, that we learned during the pandemic that people need to upload as quickly as they need to download, and we need to have that capacity that we are building towards for future use, not just what did I need yesterday for the network. So so I would say there's four federal players that are very, very key. Um, and while there is a nod to coordination, it was interesting to me that we've got a few folks in the Senate, including Senator Tina Smith from Minnesota, starting to talk about, does there need to be a coordinator? Does there need to be somebody who is kind of overseeing all of these programs to make sure that we're using these resources the most wisely and that we really are reaching those unserved Americans? Well, you led, me, you led me right into the next question. Does there need to be a broadband czar or a great Grand geek. You've been in those areas where you don't have good internet access and the wheel just spins. I think about the taxpayer that's in rural Virginia, rural Illinois, in Montana, that they know when they come out of the city limits that the wheel is just going to spin because they don't have service, and their child that couldn't go to class has now got to go to town, however far away that might be, to be able to get their homework assignment during COVID. And those were such important lessons, right? And and um, and I would even add to that, okay, let's make sure that these programs work well together, but let's also make sure that we don't allow providers to start competing for the same area using the same pots of federal funding when those areas that are less attractive continue to be unserved. So to your point, how do you manage all of that? How do we map all of that? Um, and interestingly enough, that's where I thought it was very intriguing when Senator um, Smith had raised, you know, I think we need a point person here. Now, you could say, you know, should the White House be point person? But, you know, I think they'll be just as torn over all of these different agencies. And, and how do you find somebody who's maybe got a little bit more independence who can basically choose among favorite children about, to your point, this is your role, this is your role, and this is your role. Um, so, so it's going to be um, 
even more complicated, however, in that one of the things, the bead money, which is what we call affectionately the broadband funding that will be coming through NTIA, really will go down to the states. So how could even a federal entity actually have any control about what a state does? I mean, we, we, we know how long those debates about federal control versus state control um, have been there. And what the law says is that every state, no matter how big or small you are, at a baseline will get $100 million of broadband. That means the District of Columbia, as a baseline, will get $100 million. It'll be based on need. It'll be based on the maps. It'll be based on how many un- and underserved people you've got in your state. So now you've got 50 states who have 50 different potential ways of doing this program. Hopefully, NTIA will give them some guidelines that will be very clear about best practices, ways to use it, speeds to attain, um, but they may not have to. So we still have months of um, some negotiating ahead to make sure that the guardrails are really in place to make sure that as this money funnels down, it, it does it the right way. So just because um, there are appropriations in place doesn't necessarily mean that checks are being written and services going out. Oh, and that would be, I would share with you, that is the other thing that I think consumers need to have realistic expectations. For example, the $65 billion that the Department of Commerce has that was approved, signed into law, ready to go. That money will first have to, um, the rules will come out in May. States will start having to do their plans. They will then have to comply with maps that the FCC says will be finished by the end of the year. We're honestly, Jeff, not talking about money going out the door until probably the middle of next year. So that is just the beginning of projects that are going to typically be two, three, four-year builds. So I think managing expectations for those who are still left waiting for broadband connectivity, that that's that's going to be an important part of this as well. The money is not coming out the door between now and the end of the year for that program. So do we have today an accurate, honest assessment of who has service, of who has poor service, and who has no service? No, we do not. And that is the undertaking that the FCC is currently going through, and they have a huge job ahead of them. So they are working, after a contested process, they are working with an entity who is doing this mapping. And in the past, there's been mapping, and, you know, as soon as you map it, it is out of date. Um, not to say that this is going to be easy to keep up with, but what the FCC is looking to do is dig so much deeper What we used to do with mapping, we used to say if one entity in a census block had terrific broadband service, for mapping purposes, the FCC checked the box and said, yep, done, because there's somebody in that census block. Um, what, What the FCC is now doing is really digging through and saying, okay, block by block, street by street. Um, trying to lay a fabric over the entire United States and get a real bead on where is their infrastructure, what are the speeds available, how many providers are in that area, is that home really covered. That is just going to be critical. And, and per the law for NTIA, for the $65 billion, that has to be done first before that money will flow. Excuse me for my sarcasm. It's a shame this isn't important. <gasps> yeah, 
this is um, it is really it is really hard to manage those expectations. And if I can throw one other loop into the discussion here, is that currently there's already supply chain issues. So even if we were to get the money as quickly as the government would be willing to release it, because plans are in place, mapping is in place, we're ready to go. Let's go. Um, I will share that one of the things that doesn't get picked up as often um, as it could but is going to be a huge impact is the ability to get electronics, the ability to get fiber optics, the ability to get the equipment that has to run into consumers' homes. Those things, because of production, supply chain, early COVID impacts, ongoing COVID impacts, what we watch is happening in China today. All of those things are are impeding how quickly people can actually get the materials they need to build broadband. And then, even if you can get the materials, we're having a real workforce shortage, not unlike every other industry in this country. You just can't get the teams to actually put the plant in the ground. So there are a lot of hurdles to manage here. Um, that we're going to need a lot of patience and support to get the job done. What regulations are standing in the way? What's holding up the process other than the red tape of the process? So aside from the process needing to get out of its own way, um, I would share that, yeah, absolutely there's obstacles. For example, um, you've got a lot of local rights of way. And, you know, folks who've done anything in any kind of a construction space understand that um, the ability to build where you need to build certainly has its challenges. You look out west, you know, folks that have to cover across forest land or land that is covered under uh, BLM. Those things are extra challenges. You've got to deal with the Department of Interior. You've got to get the sign-offs. You've got to be able to get the, the latitude to build. Those things take so much longer than they need to do, and we should put all of those agencies on a shot clock so that they really have a time frame that they've got to act um, within. And then I will tell you the sleeper issue is if you have to go, um, and in rural America this happens often, you've got to go over a railroad crossing, good luck. Um, because railroad crossings are private. And uh, my folks will tell you some of the biggest hang-ups is getting the authorization from the railroads to be able to build the fiber optics underneath um, those lines. And uh, the time it takes, the extra cost it takes, huge hurdles in some of these rural markets that um, are kind of the, the silent enemy here. Do rural electric co-ops have a leg up here, and do they have a level playing field to compete for these dollars? So I think the advantage that electric co-ops have in this space, and again, particularly when they are, are serving an area that has been unserved or underserved by, by a large nationwide carrier, um, where, where you're not actually setting two local providers against one another, you know, in, in, you know, a local broadband company against the local electric cooperative, is that the electrics do have some of these rights of way. They also have poles. So the ability, they don't have to do what, what my companies have to do, which is to negotiate pole attachments. That is a big, it's make ready. It's the ability to move very, very quickly um, because it is their own poles. I think the biggest challenge for them is making sure that they are not cross-subsidizing the electric network against the broadband network um, because you don't want to have consumers have to pay 
twice for for things. So I think there's there's some things to be mindful of, but I think that there is enough unserved territory in this country that I think it's really ripe for some very interesting partnerships to take place, whether it's between electric co-ops and a and a community-based broadband provider like my member companies, whether it's between a municipality and a broadband provider, whether it's between a local community um, who's decided to become activists about some of their unserved areas, again, working with folks who actually know how to build these broadband networks. I think there's going to be a lot of really interesting solutions um, that folks are going to tap to get the job done. So as with technology, we are now at a point you know, you're talking about three or four years before some of this is done. Are the minimums that we would consider acceptable today out of the question for what we need in the years to come? And does that, the last thing you want to do is spend an exorbitant amount of money on something that's outdated the day you bring it online. Absolutely. And let's go back, Jeff, to two years ago when we thought, you know, what we thought was acceptable was acceptable until our kid is at the kitchen counter doing homework. You're on your VPN trying to get into the office and somebody's gaming in the basement. Suddenly what we thought was okay and enough, and then somebody else is streaming a movie somewhere in the house, what we thought was enough is not enough. So we've already learned that lesson. Now let's go to that multiplier effect, that idea that every couple of years how we amp up by eightfold, um, you know, the capacity of what we need. Um, so, so I would say there is that. The other thing that I think we learned during the pandemic in terms of, of some of this, we never thought about uploading before, right? It was just let me download, let me download. Well, now we know that if I'm going to do a Zoom call and I'm not going to have like I'm not going to have jitter and I'm not going to have distractions and I need to send you a document, I need to upload too. I can't sit here with that turning wheel for an hour waiting for this 40-page document to upload to you so that you can review it and do what you need to do. So to your point, the best way to make use of these resources is let's be forward thinking. I mean, again, because the cost is not just the infrastructure in the ground. It's digging it. It is the crew to put it into place. Doing that again in three or four years, oh, my goodness, we have just wasted, um, you know, a huge amount of resources to, to do it all over again. So, again, shame on us if we're not forward-looking because we have learned. We have documented. We have data. We know what American consumers want. And, and frankly, we know that rural, you know, folks have moved to rural areas. There has definitely been an out-migration. And to make those communities attractive and to, and to keep people there who may have moved out during remote work, we need to make sure they've got access to the same services that somebody like myself here in the Washington, D.C. area has access to. That's, that is the key to all of this. So the reasons that we need service, who's being left out? And how are we suffering for rural communities being underserved? Oh, you know, I think we saw that when you were in a rural area that did not have connectivity and suddenly you couldn't work from home because you didn't have connectivity. And then you couldn't apply for government benefits or unemployment or you were taking your kid to a school parking lot to do their homework. I I think we have... I think we will forever know the penalties that we put part of our of our population under for not having that connectivity. So I, I think there is a real recognition 
What I really hope, Jeff, is that here in Washington we don't have that short-term amnesia and now that the world has opened up again that we forget that um that 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 we need to make sure that those those folks continue to be a priority the one thing i really do like about the initiatives that are underway the things that i am seeing most of these agencies really focus on is they are really prioritizing those who are unserved we know who's unserved um, where it gets iffy is if you're underserved and your speeds might not be sufficient. But if you do not have connectivity, um, thankfully, all of those folks are going to be at the top of the list um, for this money coming down, both from the money that's already there, ARPA, CARES, Treasury funding, and then the new money coming down as well. So I, I think that's an important recognition, but we have got to make sure that rural America does not get left behind. Well, as in our name, there is agriculture of AgriPulse, <laughs> and that I'm an agriculture journalist. I've got to bring this up because from an agriculture perspective, technology is our life's blood, and more and more companies and even commodity organizations are saying that rural broadband and service is critical to the sustainability and the success of their operations and this industry. You are so right. And, you know, that is the reason we have partnered with a number of these entities. We, we have been really focused for a number of years now, and we have really amplified our efforts on what it takes to create a smart rural community. How do we really look at who are all the stakeholders to make rural America smart? And by smart, it is how do we have these services, this innovation, this entrepreneurship that is fueled by broadband? And so, for example, we're going to be gathering in June in Las Vegas with folks like the Heartland Forward Foundation, with Land of Lakes, with the National Rural Education Association, with the National uh, Rural Health Association, getting all of these really key stakeholders around the table at a summit to kick through what is it going to take to build a smart rural community and what is it going to take to sustain it and why is it so important to every one of these sectors, whether it's agriculture, healthcare, um, entrepreneurship, real estate relocation, all of those factors and having those voices at the table because they too recognize that all future business models really are truly built on connectivity. Shirley Bloomfield, we want to thank you for taking time to be with us on this edition of Open Mic. Obviously not a bigger priority for so many than having uh, adequate broadband, and we appreciate your work and the work of your membership. Thanks for being with us on this edition of the program. It is Open Mic, and Shirley, you have the last word today. Jeff, I just want to thank you, as always, for highlighting the issues that are so important to the future of rural America. So thank you for the chance to talk today. Our thanks to Shirley Bloomfield, CEO at NTCA, the Rural Broadband Association, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Bayer, helping meet the challenges of sustainability to help shape possibilities and our vision of health for all, hunger for none. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Nelly.